Uh, hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Robert Spencer, Director of JihadWatch.org and a Shulman Fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center, join us to discuss freedom of speech about Islam, increasing or diminishing. Uh, Mr. Spencer will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Robert Spencer. Hello, thank you all for being here. Uh, it's a little bit out of season, actually, because March 15th is the day that has been designated by the United Nations as the International Day to Combat Islamophobia. And that is, I think, the clearest indicator that we have right now about the state of the freedom of speech regarding Islam, Jihad, Sharia, and related issues. The International Day to Combat Islamophobia was passed uh, as a resolution unanimously by the General Assembly a few weeks ago. And what was noteworthy was that at the time that it was passed, the representative of France pointed out that there was not actually any generally accepted definition of the word at hand, which only underlined the absurdity of declaring an international day to combat something when nobody really agrees on what exactly it is. And that is the key issue because the term Islamophobia, although there are a few scattered uses of it before the 1990s, it was adopted in the 1990s by the International Institute of Islamic Thought, by the Rand Corporation and others as a term that was actually meant to deal with two distinct phenomena. The first was vigilante attacks against innocent Muslims, which of course are never justified under any circumstances. And so if that's what we're talking about, when we're talking about Islamophobia, then there's really no problem. Nobody wants to see any innocent people being attacked. At the same time, however, the same word is used often by the same people to refer to any honest discussion of the motivating ideology behind jihad terror attacks, even when that ideology is enunciated by the jihadis themselves. That is, when jihadis of Al-Qaeda or ISIS or any of the other groups quote the Quran and explain what they are doing in Islamic terms, for non-Muslims to pass that on is Islamophobia. So this creates a great difficulty for this International Day to Combat Islamophobia. Is it a day to combat vigilante action and attacks on innocent people? Then that's great. But is it a day also, and in addition to the first, a day to combat criticism of Islam? Now, when one notes that Islam has doctrines of violence against unbelievers, and that the Quran says, kill them wherever you find them three times. When you meet the unbelievers, strike the necks, uh, fight to subjugate the non-Muslims, the people of the book, until they pay the jizya, attacks with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. When you have all of this, 
Is it Islamophobia to discuss that? Now, this is the key problem. One of the key, one of the primary drivers of the International Day to Combat Islamophobia at the United Nations was the former Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan. And Imran Khan, in numerous statements, made it very clear that what he found intolerable and what he wanted the West to proscribe, that is to forbid, was criticism of Islam. In Islamic law, Sharia, criticism of Islam is a capital offense. The uh, contract of protection or the dimma with non-Muslims specifically states that the contract is abrogated and that is the lives of the non-Muslims are at risk if they mention something impermissible that is critical about Allah, Muhammad, or the Quran. And so what we are seeing with the International Day to Combat Islamophobia is an attempt to intimidate and or to fool the West into essentially criminalizing criticism of Islam or words that are critical of Allah, Muhammad, and the Quran under the guise of fighting Islamophobia. This follows many years of the United Nations attempting to do exactly the same thing under the guise of fighting incitement to religious hatred. And actually, the United States agreed to a resolution calling on member states to criminalize incitement to religious hatred about 10 years ago during the, uh, the uh, Barack Obama administration when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. And she noted in a subsequent speech before the Organization of Islamic Cooperation that the First Amendment made it impossible just to outlaw this speech that was undesirable, but that what she called old-fashioned techniques of peer pressure and shaming could and should be used in order to bring about the outcomes that they wanted, that is, to silence those who were saying things that they didn't like about Islam primarily. And so we have seen that actually advance in the United States since then with uh, very well-heeled groups such as the Southern Poverty Law Center, as well as the even the Anti-Defamation League, zeroing in on people that they charge with being Islamophobes. And uh, as a result, these people have been uh, subjected to all manner of uh, uh, restrictions with various groups, various platforms denying them access or various groups cutting them off and so on. This is the kind of exactly, I think, the kind of peer pressure and shaming that Hillary Clinton was envisioning. Now, the problem with the terminology of incitement to religious hatred is that it is also not clear. It is also subjective after the manner of Islamophobia. Uh, what constitutes Islamophobia is apparently going to be up to whoever is empowered with this responsibility at the UN. And I would guarantee you, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever I think it's 100% certainty that incidents of Islamophobia, if the UN begins to catalog them, will not just include vigilante attacks against innocent Muslims, but also speech that 
Muslims consider to be, or some Muslims at least consider to be Islamophobic. That is critical beyond some accept, acceptable line. The problem with that is that counter-terror investigations of the ways in which jihadis use the texts and teachings of Islam in order to justify violence and make recruits among peaceful Muslims have been characterized from the beginning, from before the time that of the 9-11 attacks, as hateful, as incitement, and of course as Islamophobic. So this once again would be the kind of speech that is envisioned when one is uh, silencing and going about fighting Islamophobia and silencing its perpetrators. So how can, in this environment, honest discussion, open discussion about uh, topics regarding Islam be maintained? Uh, it would seem that the only possible answer to that is to uh, confront the very concept of Islamophobia head on, as the representative of France did at the time of the debate on this international day to combat Islamophobia. Remember that the French representative at the UN said, there's no definition of Islamophobia. And also uh, it's noteworthy that the French re the, uh, representative said that the, that the French delegation had proposed a text that endorsed the freedom of all religions and all beliefs, and that the creation of this international day to combat Islamophobia didn't address other forms of discrimination. I think it's uh, also very striking that the United Nations doesn't have an international day to combat the persecution of Christians, even though the, persecu the Christian persecution is far more common internationally, particularly in Africa, than uh, hostility toward Muslims. And here again, no hostility toward Muslims is justified if it manifests itself in violence or discrimination or harassment. Uh, but the UN clearly is being run, being manipulated by the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which has been behind this incitement to religious hatred business from the beginning and by various national governments in particular that are part of the OIC, but are pursuing this individually as well, most notably Pakistan. Uh, it's also important to note that that previous initiative to uh, call upon member states to criminalize incitement to religious hatred came in the wake of the controversy over cartoons of Muhammad. Now, the only reason why the uh, controversy began, and you may recall it was in 2005 when the Danish newspaper uh, Jyllands Posten published, art, uh, published cartoons of Muhammad that later on after the OIC brought them to the attention of the Islamic world became the focus of international riots. Now, the cartoons were only published in order to emphasize the importance of the freedom of speech and to take note of the fact that there were elements within the Islamic world that had actually called for the deaths of people who dared to draw Muhammad. And so the response was formulated that if many people, if 
uh, you, of course, later on on the internet, there was the everybody draw Muhammad day. If everybody draws Muhammad, they can't kill everyone. And it would be a sign of our defense of the freedom of speech to print the cartoons, to stand up and say, we are not going to submit to violent intimidation in this regard, and not going to invite further bullying by kowtowing to this bullying on this issue. But of course, for the most part, the West did not do that and actually has internalized the idea that it does cross some unacceptable line to publish cartoons of Muhammad. I think that, uh, of course, much of this is just out of a fear of being targeted and killed as there have been other occasions, other events since those riots in 2007. But at the same time, it also comes from, as the mainstream media outlets in the West uh, noted, comes from an idea that we have to show a certain kind of respect to Islam. Now that's all very well. I'm all for being respectful to, uh, to, to everyone as a matter of fact. Uh, but respect, what, what exactly does that mean? Obviously the same uh, opinion outlets that were saying that we had to have respect for Islam and that drawing Muhammad would be unacceptably crossing the line against that respect had no trouble with uh, publishing or praising or both very uh, offensive depictions of Christian symbols. And then in that context, criticism of that material became a threat to the freedom of speech. And we had suddenly a bunch of free speech absolutists among the media. But I think the days of free speech absolutism in pretty much any context are over. And now uh, we have seen in a variety of contexts, notably in the uproar over a self-proclaimed free speech absolutist, Elon Musk, the prospect of his taking over Twitter has created such an uproar with people actually openly espousing censorship and the silencing of people whose opinions they find unacceptable. This, I think, uh, had its dry run in the fight against the Muhammad cartoons and the fight against the uh, so-called Islamophobes. And now the UN is on record saying it's going to observe this day for, of Islamophobia every year. This is only going to have even more of a chilling effect such that those who, who dare to speak out about this issue will be further demonized, marginalized, and ultimately silenced. Uh, at the same time, however, I will conclude with an optimistic note, and that is based on the fact that there is so much pushback to this, and that Musk is trying to buy Twitter at all, and that there are others who support him and say that this, uh, this societal paradigm of censorship is inimical to the principles of a free society. And of course, if they win out, then it may indeed also save the possibility for criticism of Islam. But I suspect that uh, in this, just as it happened on the way into this situation of censorship, so also the uh, response in general to criticism of Islam will be the bellwether and vanguard for how the freedom of speech fares in general in the, uh, in the coming years. 
So thank you very much. And if you have questions, comments, and so on, we'll go to that now. All right, thank you so much. So the first question is, uh, when the French representative mentioned that uh, there's no definition for Islamophobia, was any definition tried to put in place? No, there's no definition for Islamophobia, not only in the UN definite, in the UN Day of Islamophobia, but also in the anti-Islamophobia resolution that uh, the House of Representatives passed a few months ago. Uh, it's noteworthy that it's still under consideration in the Senate, hasn't been voted on yet to my knowledge, uh, but it doesn't contain any definition or explanation of what exactly it's, it's prohibiting. Uh, Elaine Ellinger asks, uh, is it possible to launch a court challenge to demonstrate that fear of Islam is entirely rational and set a precedent? It could happen. It uh, would be a clear freedom of speech case. It would need the uh, explicit silencing of somebody on the basis of criticizing Islam. And that's never happened to my knowledge up to now. What's happened is uh, the classification of individuals and groups who speak about these issues honestly as hate groups or hate leaders. And then uh, you, you have a kind of domino effect from that. I mean, for example, in, in my own case, I was designated a hate group leader because I speak about Islam having doctrines of violence. And then, so I have a 501c3 charitable organization, Jihad Watch, and Amazon announced they have this program where they'll give money to charities and you can register any charity you want, except those that are listed as hate groups by the SPLC. And that's the kind of thing that happened. And then of course, uh, Patreon, I was banned from there, MasterCard, uh, PayPal briefly, various others, because it's, it's hate, you see. But it's an, that's an entirely subjective evaluation that's based on highly politicized uh, perspectives. But right now there's no appeal to that because these are private corporations. So you can go try to take them to court and say Amazon ought to let me into their charitable group, but then they can, they'll just tell me Amazon can do whatever it wants. It's a, it's, a, it's a private corporation. But if it were to come to the point where, and I think it could nowadays in this environment we're in today, it could happen that in the near future, we'll have somebody who is actually silenced explicitly, perhaps by this new disinformation governance board out of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, for criticizing Islam or spreading alleged disinformation about it. And then that would be an easy, I think, freedom of speech case that should be an easy win in the courts, at least theoretically. So now you, you were talking about disinformation. Uh, if it was easily backed up, would, would that still happen? Yeah, sure. Disinformation is not falsehood. Disinformation is what's politically inconvenient to those in power. Uh, this is uh, illustrated very clearly by the fact that the director of the Disinformation Governance Board is an individual named Nina Jankowitz, who is on record saying that Hunter Biden's laptop, his notorious laptop full of compromising information, was a Russian uh, pro counterintelligence product and not real. Now this has been definitively established as false. And we know for sure now 
that Hunter Biden's laptop is real. It's been acknowledged by all hands. And so she herself was spreading disinformation. But of course, that doesn't count. It, it, it's really just whatever she and the people who are behind her want to silence, they can call disinformation. Now, of course, this is a very new thing. This disinformation governance board has hardly gotten off the ground yet. And we'll see if it survives. It would seem to me that it won't survive the slightest First Amendment challenge, but it hasn't even been there hasn't even been time enough to challenge it yet. I lost my mouth. All right. Uh, Richard Galber asks, uh, have any Western states actually made Islamophobia a crime? Not to my knowledge, no. They, they're moving toward it, but the uh, several attempts to do so have foundered precisely on the problem of defining it. There was a real uh, movement for this in Britain, but it got lost amid problems over the definition. And nobody could agree on what, it, how, what exactly the definition should consist of. And so far, that's where we are. Thank you. Uh, Rosin Michael Shorenstein asks, have other religious organizations protested to the UN that this day is unfair? I don't think so. It's possible, however, particularly Hindu organizations would have ample reason because there is now this concept of Hindu phobia and uh, uh, Hindutva, which is just Hinduness in Hindi, but it is used as a word for the Hindu right wing and the party of uh, Mo the Prime Minister Modi and so on. And there are actually all kinds of warnings and seminars and such uh, sponsored by groups linked to the Council on American Islamic Relations and so on in the United States warning about Hindutva and a pushback from Hindu groups saying this is Hindu phobia and uh, it's unlawful, uh, unjust discrimination, I should say. And I think that will ultimately come to a head, if not at the UN, then certainly in, uh, on American campuses. Uh, it, it would seem as if allowing this unbridled, and in many cases unjust, criticism of Hinduism and Hindus while forbidding criticism of Islam is something that's not ultimately going to be tenable, but so far has been sustained by the victimhood narrative that Muslims are supposedly so discriminated against and harassed in the United States that we need to take these measures to protect them. Now that in itself is a false narrative as FBI hate crime statistics show every year that attacks against Muslims are actually quite rare and they should be rare, but the fact is there's not some terrible anti-Muslim climate in the United States. And so the idea that uh, this special consideration is needed is unfounded, but none of this has been has worked out in any formal context as of yet. Understood. Jeff Billingham asks, uh, or states, there's been one successful lawsuit that he knows of against the SPLC. Uh, yeah. Could that encourage more? Well, you know, that's been a few years now, and I hoped so right after that happened. You're referring, I assume, to Majid Nawaz and his uh, defamation lawsuit when they made him a hate group leader, and that was successful. But I joined several initiatives to uh, the, the, that promised that they were going to sue the SPLC and were gathering information and so on. And 
they all just petered out. I haven't heard anything about them in months and months, maybe years now. I don't know what happened. I don't know why this is so difficult. In my own case, I can speak a little more specifically that several lawyers have told me that because the defamatory material about me is older than the statute of limitations, therefore there's nothing that can be done. It would seem to me that that somehow that has to be addressed. And I don't know how, but ultimately it seems like in a larger sense, the nature of the internet makes the statute of limitations kind of a dead letter because it used to be, I understand that something would be written in a newspaper in 1933 and by 1953, nobody has that newspaper and nobody cares. But you write something in the internet in, in 2003, it's still there. And people can read it with no trouble today. My dossier on the, at the SPLC is front and center and readily available. So it was written many years ago. It doesn't seem to me that ought to matter, but I'm no lawyer. Thank you. Uh, JL asks, uh, states, you say that the days of absolute, in reference to your last point there, you say that the days of absolute free speech are over, but don't people like Elon Musk and uh, Netflix recent statement to employees defending artistic license mean they are not yet over as long as people continue to speak up? Yeah, well, the Musk thing is really going to be the test because they're gunning for him, uh, perhaps literally. He even tweeted something dark the other day about if he's found dead or something. Uh, meanwhile, the Federal Trade Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, probably others are investigating whether he has broken some laws in trying to buy Twitter. And so we'll see if it even happens that he can buy Twitter. If he can, all bets are off. Yeah, then the battle for the freedom of speech is joined. But if they succeed in stopping him, then that's yet another blow to an already seriously threatened right. Thank you. Dennis Karpfast, uh, can the proposed Free Speech Act help combat fake anti-Islam speech? Well, I don't know what what's fake anti-Islam speech. I don't know what that is. Okay, we can move on. <laughs> An anonymous attendee asks, how do you respond when anti-Semitism is equated with, anti with Islamophobia, which demeans and trivializes age-old anti-Jewish hatred? You know, that's very important. Thank you for that question, because this is something that is taken for granted nowadays, and we see them so often in the litany of evils that the good people reject, you know, we stand against racism, sexism, uh, uh, homophobia, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, and uh, whatever is the, you know, the new ones, transphobia, and who knows what's next. But in any case, uh, there are big differences. One is that in the case of anti-Semitism, there really are attacks on Jews. Jews remain the most attacked group in those hate crime statistics that the FBI puts out every year. The Muslims are way down on the list, and there are many others who are more vulnerable to those attacks. This is not just one year. It's year after year after year after year. You can go back. All the, all the reports year by year are online. That's one thing. Another thing is that Islamophobia is not defined. And anti-Semitism, we know what that is. So we know that anti-Semitism is not 
criticism of Judaism or pointing out that Judaism teaches certain things. But if I say Islam teaches kill them wherever you find them, uh, that's in the Quran, because it's it, I mean, or just note that it's in the Quran three times and so on, that's Islamophobia. And people say I'm this terrible Islamophobe. All I'm doing is saying what Islam teaches and to the best of my ability, representing it accurately. So is there the same confusion about the nature of anti-Semitism? I don't think so. That uh, it's not a conflation of two distinct phenomena, vigilante attacks against innocent people, and also criticism of the thing, of the concepts. That doesn't exist in anti-Semitism. And third, there aren't, there's not a global network of Jewish terrorists who are committing acts of terrorism in the name of Judaism. Now, there are Islamic terrorists all around the world on every continent except Antarctica who are committing acts of terror in the name of Islam on a more or less daily basis. Now, does this mean that attacks on innocent Muslims are justified? Absolutely not. However, to say that Islamophobia understood as criticism of Islam is some gratuitous attack on innocent Muslims who were just minding their own business. It, that's just propaganda. This comes in the context of trying to understand where Islamic terrorism comes from. And so it's on those, for those three reasons, the comparison should be rejected and I think must be rejected. Mm. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Jeanette Morrison asks, is it time to dismantle the UN? Oh yeah, I've been against the UN for years. Uh, I think the UN should be completely defunded, the United States withdraw from it and it be sent packing from New York. Uh, I mean, think of what could be done with that prime real estate there uh, in, in the middle of Manhattan. But uh, more importantly, the UN is now a platform for some of the worst uh, human rights offenders in the world. And this obsessive hysteria over Israel is extraordinarily damaging to a reliable ally, to a functioning democracy in the Middle East and so on. And so what, what are we getting for all the money we pour into the UN? What does it do exactly? Actually, just yesterday, I saw this wonderful parody video, uh, get the UN home security. Uh, the UN home security will do for you what the UN did for Rwanda and uh, all these other places. And so it shows this burglar coming in and starting to take your stuff. And the UN people come in and start taking careful notes about everything they're taking. And then hands them some money to give them a disincentive to stealing. And it's your money, of course, and on and on in that way. And you, th I thought about it. I thought, well, that's actually pretty much dead on. And uh, what what good does this organization do at this point, really? I think that's that's not a rhetorical question. That's a very serious question. And I don't think there's any good answer. Thank you. And uh, before we go, can you please tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? Yeah, um, I am at jihadwatch.org, which is still the only site that tracks jihad violence in the United States and around the world every day. I have a new book, The Critical Quran, which uh, carries an endorsement from Dr. Pipes uh, saying, let's see, he says, it's a great achievement, he says, and thank you for that. And 
the critical Quran is a new translation of the Quran with commentary from mainstream Islamic sources. So you get honesty about what it says when many translations actually try to obfuscate what it says and clarity about how it is generally understood. And then I'm at Jihad Watch RS on Twitter and uh, there's a Facebook page, but it's all shadow banned. All right, well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Mr. Spencer, for taking time to update us today. And for our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offering email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.